Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and I have a somewhat unusual episode today uh, for two reasons. One is that the topic is one I don't usually talk about because I mostly stick to stuff happening in America, but we're going to be talking about things happening in Israel, but there's an American angle on this as well. And the second reason this is an unusual episode is that the guest is a relative of mine, my first cousin, Ora Pelidakash. And Ora, if I mispronounced your name at all, that'd be very embarrassing. So <laughs> let me know and I might record that again. But if not, Ora, could you please introduce yourself? Oh, that was a perfect intro. And you actually pronounced my name the best way I've ever heard an American <laughs> pronounce it. And okay. I, I work with Americans and I just introduced myself as Ora. I just completely, you know, give up on pronouncing it in the Hebrew. So you you did an amazing job there. Okay, great. And can you just give a little background about who you are aside from being my cousin? Well, there's not much in life other than being your cousin, <laughs> I guess. Um, well, seriously, I'm I'm um, Sabra. I was born in Israel. Um, my mom made Aliyah. She was born in New Jersey. She grew up there. Um, she came to Israel. She went in a kibbutz. She met my dad, which was a Holocaust survivor that came to Israel as an orphan. Um, and they built a family in Israel in uh, Ramad David, which is my uh, home kibbutz. I grew up there and I live there today as well. I have two kids, married to, happily married to Ori, which is a kibbutznik as well from another kibbutz. Um, and what I do for a living today, I'm into tech. So I think that might come up a bit in our conversation. I work for a big international company, which I wouldn't name. <laughs> um, my background is probably the most relevant part of it is my military service. Um, I had somewhat an unusual um, service. I volunteered to the Navy, you know, late 90s. So I ended up being the first woman to graduate from the Israeli Naval Academy back at 2000. Um, and that was something that didn't happen before and was possible because Israel's Supreme Court uh, ruled, uh, kind of like explicitly opened the doors of some of the elite units of the um, the Israeli Navy, Air Force, and, and Army in general for women. So that kind of like is the connecting tissue of, of, you know, what brings me here today and current events in Israel. Right. So, okay. So we're going to be talking about this protest movement that you are involved with that's happening in Israel uh, right now. And yeah, just the, the villain more of the background, your mother and my mother are sisters. And so we are first cousins. And you, maybe not everyone knows that Israel has basically like universal compulsory military service, you know, at age 18. And, and correct me if I have any of the facts wrong here. So men and women both serve, but women usually serve two years instead of three years. And then sometimes do something that's more like um, a community service kind of thing for part of that. So you are a pathbreaking person in in Israel, and I remember that our grandmother um, had a, a news clipping with a photo of you that she had framed in her house because it was national news that a woman had, you know, graduated from this elite program. And oh wow, I I, I don't think I even knew that part. I didn't know Grandma had a. Yeah, a I remember clip. it was a photo of I, you. I, you were sort of like you're sort of I, at least. I mean, this was. I would have less seen this over a decade ago. So maybe I'm misremembering, but I think it was you sort of like walking out of the waves or something, like walking like out of yeah, a boat there's... onto the shore or something. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, there's there's been um there's been a lot of it's funny to talk about it, you know, today, but there's been a lot of media coverage at the time. As you mentioned, it was, you know, it drew a lot of attention mm -hmm. of the you know, printed uh, papers, which was a thing at the time. So at the time, there was really a lot of, I would say, attention. Because I think, again, putting it in context, um, Israel 
is pretty conservative. The way you describe the military service, um, we have mandatory service, meaning, mm -hmm. again, it's changed quite a bit in, since I graduated uh, over 20 years ago. But just in general, this distinction between what a woman is required to do and what a man is required to do is still basically in place. Again, the terms of service change a bit from time to time. So it might be, you know, the difference or the gap between how long a woman would serve to how long a man would serve. Uh, that is probably getting smaller over time. But mm -hmm. I think the general idea where you do a gender-based role or a gender-based duty, that is hopefully going away, um, you know, mm -hmm. over time. That's that. That seemed to be the trend again <laughs> until current events kind of like hit us, but we could get more into that. Um, okay. Why I'm active about this. Okay. So then, so you stayed in the military for a longer length of time than just the standard, you know, mandatory service. And then you left the military and now you work for a tech company that we won't mention, but every American has heard of this tech company. Um, okay. So then just to give sort of a, refresh your background on what's happening in Israel. And again, please correct me if I get any of the details wrong. You know, so Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu has been the dominant figure over the past 15 or 20 years, I guess more like 15, in Israeli politics. And he is uh, quite conservative. And I've thought of him in some ways as sort of like um, the Israeli version of Trump, except much smarter which wouldn't be hard because Trump is pretty stupid, but uh, Netanyahu is, is also much more like savvier in terms of internal politics and always st staying alive. And, and so he has been prime minister repeatedly and it was elected prime minister more times than anyone else in Israeli history, I think. And then like a year, 18 months or so ago, he was finally, his party or his coalition was finally ousted by like an anti-Netanyahu coalition that had, um, a much more diverse coalition ideologically and in terms of um, Jews and Arabs were in the coalition uh, because they all were so anti-Netanyahu, but it was a- Yeah, I think just to make it a bit more colorful or, or paint a, a, a picture that has a bit more details, I don't, I wouldn't say this coalition came together just to block Netanyahu. I, I think there's a broader- story here, which has to do with the fact that Israel is in, in stagnation, like this political deadlock leading to five election terms over, you know, a period of three years during a global pandemic. That is probably more than just a question uh, pro Netanyahu, anti Netanyahu. It's, it's more about, could we build, you know, an administration or a government that puts the citizens first. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm probably sounding a bit political here, but this is all political, so. Right, and, and yeah, and so but they're you kept see on... I'm saying? It's not about this guy or the other guy. It's, it's the question, can we please move on? Could we build bridges over differences, you know? Yeah, so Israel is a parliamentary system and the Knesset is the legislative body and you need a majority and there's all these small parties and so no, it's rare that a single party gets a majority. They usually have to have this coalition and it kept on. They, and so there were, there was either repeatedly a very narrow coalition that would fall apart or no co coalition was able to be put together. And so there were many, many elections, uh, seemingly like every, you know, like two elections a year, just very different from the American system where it's, you know, every four years is a presidential election. And it was always like very close, like either way, and then, so so finally, this anti-Netanyahu coalition came together, um, and then that fell apart. And so there was a, a recent round of elections. Netanyahu's coalition emerged victorious, uh, but it's the like the most right-wing conservative coalition in Israeli history. And yeah, and it's, so let me add. Yeah, I think that was a very accurate description. I'll, so in the Israeli sphere, the way we describe it, is called the sixth Netanyahu government. Like this is the sixth time or the sixth term that he's going to take. 
I don't think he ever completed like a full four-year term. Uh, his his administrations are highly unstable, but that also I think is kind of like by design. Like the fact that when when the coalition breaks apart and the Knesset kind of like votes to um, distribute itself to speak, what happens is the power stays at the temporary government. Like you know, that administration is in place, like a transition period. So what happened in reality, we had the Tanyawin transition periods, um, probably for more time than, you know, being um, elected. Hmm. Okay. I, I don't know if these terms are the way it works in the U.S., but, you know, like you have between the elections in November to the... Yeah, it's um, it's very different in the U.S. because, like, the Constitution says at noon on, you know, this specific day power transfers and then that's it where yeah so it's like if the election has happened in israel if the election has happened and there's not an obvious winning coalition there's all these like negotiations between the different parties and there's sort of like a caretaker period that happens but then it, it might all fall apart and then like there's another election I, I want to tap into two of the points you just mentioned, because I think those are key to understand what's going on in Israel. And I, I really like like seeing it from the outside. One is the constitution. So Israel doesn't have a constitution. Um, we have the Declaration of Independence, which most people um, treat it as like our constitution, but it doesn't have any um, legislative power. Like it's not a formal document that has it's it's not bound to any law it's mm -hmm. just like the spirit of the country so that's like a gap we have and there's been voices over the years saying we need a constitution um again without being too political israel doesn't have declared uh boundaries in some of it you know west bank annexation all the, the bo borders border. yeah so the borders, borders are yeah. contested yeah <laughs> everyone yes yeah. exactly yeah, so I think we're we're you know as the parent, I know boundaries and borders are important. <laughs> uh, we're lacking some, um, so that's one point. And the second point you raised, which I think is super interesting and relevant, is the transition of power, or the lack of clear way to transition power. Um, and again, I could I could go on a tangent on this one, but just. Just in general, I think the way the Israeli political system has been set up had a lot of um, norms built into it. And as one that read, um, I did my reading. I read How Democracies uh, Die, uh, Zeidler and mm -hmm. God, I forget the other guy. Um, but they talk about eroding norms, yes. uh, which, again, when we're talking about, you know, comparing Israel and 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 the U.S. definitely there. I mean, the way I'm seeing it is norms in Israel started eroding probably in the early 80s. Um, hmm. You know, there was a peace protester killed by a hand grenade from an extre extremist. Like this is in Israel that's considered like probably the first political um, you know, assassination or the first act of political violence is probably not true, but it's kind of like where people draw the line of hmm. division. Like in the, I think it was during, it was definitely during the first uh, Lebanon war, probably around 82, uh, you know, peace pro protesters in Jerusalem and, um, you know, someone threw a hand grenade uh, against the protesters and uh, a person was killed. So that's, early in the 80s. But since then, and when you talk about the rise of Netanyahu and some people which are old enough, me included to remember, was um, the Rabin administration from 92 started the peace process, the Oslo peace process with the Palestinians, mm -hmm. which was highly controversial. Uh, again, that coalition had a very nar narrow margin. And we'll, we'll take a point on Ali Adari which was now, you know, uh, ruled out. But he he was he was part of that um, coalition as well. Huh. Uh, Ari Adari was on, on Rabin's uh, government. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, so there's this guy yeah, that's, who's, I yeah, guess, was go, like kicked we, out. We could go on Adari all day, yeah. Yeah, kicked out of <laughs> Netanyahu's coalition and it rose to, like, you know, 
international news. The Times was reporting on it. And this guy's name is also REA. Um, and there's not a lot of REAs in the news. So I, I was somewhat paying attention to this particular guy who's now a right wing. He's not Lee Kud. He has his own party, right? It's like a religious party or something. But yeah, he, he's. But, um, he, anyway, but this uh, plays in. The, yeah. the reason he was kicked out plays in because there's like a rule or a law that if you have been convicted of a crime or a felony, then you can't be like in the cabinet or like a, a minister position. Is that, is that right? Yes. Yeah. There's again, that's, that's again, going back to norms. Like there's um, a court ruling saying that if a minister has um, an active, police investigation against them, they need to resign or something like that. It's not bound in a law, like it's not written, but it's, you know, a precedent, I think that would be the word to Mm -hmm. describe it. So what happens is Netanyahu could not serve as a minister, but he can serve as a prime minister. Like there's a loophole there, if you see it, like. Okay. See what I was saying? Like, yeah. he he doesn't meet like the minimum requirement to serve as a minister in terms of like, you know, the ethics or the what's required by law. But no one ever thought about a situation where a person <laughs> that's in the same position would would want to become a prime minister. So okay, that's interesting. That's, yeah. And and a lot of things that happened in America during the Trump administration were also like there had been a norm and Trump doesn't care about norms at all. So he destroyed that and it kind of showed how, yeah, how much of like government was sort of these, not laws, but just like the things that were expected. And it was like relying on the personal virtue and like, you know, ability to be publicly shamed of the politicians to keep these things going. And so like no one had ever tried to rally their supporters to storm the the Capitol before during the counting of the electoral college votes, like, they never thought that would happen. So there was no like specific law like against that. And then Trump just bulldozed through that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go back. Uh, Rabin being the prime minister, starting the priest process, this being highly controversial. Yes. In the midst of, in the midst of everything, a lot of demonstrations, a lot of resistance, many um, terror attacks as well. But in the midst of all this, um, Ali Adairi, his member of, of the coalition has been um, mandated to resign by the court. And that breaks Rabin's coalition to speak. So later on, he looks for ways to put it back in place, but he, he has to fire him because that's what the court says. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a few months, um, November 4th, 1995, Rabin is assassinated by a Jewish um, right-wing extremist Mm -hmm. um but that was after a very long period of um i don't know what the word for it i should probably look it up but there's there was a lot of debate and like inflammation around and i'm not sure i'm using the right words to describe this but this was not like a single person acting on their own okay maybe Um, yeah there was like the the right wing was very opposed to the peace process and there was like incitement would be maybe a word like yeah. you know there were people saying like very provocative things and talking about you know citizens using yeah. violence and then this guy assassinated rabin and um and that's maybe i mean you knew the exact date so obviously that's that this was yeah. like a signal event like the kennedy assassination in america or something in, yeah, in I also know that date. I know I also know that date because I turned 16 the day after. So <laughs> okay. for me, this is this is completely personal, and I just gave away my age. <laughs> but I wanna I wanna bring us back on track on this because yes. the reason I'm mentioning all this because the politics at the time, the person that led the opposition to Rabin was Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. And the public remembers how reckless this person has been at the time. Um, the last TV interview Rabin did was he said, I do not believe this guy. He's lying. He's, you know, he's turning people against me. I, I will not talk to him. Um, About Netanyahu. Yes. 
he, he was acting recklessly in our democracy. So again, my generation of teenagers at the time, we were called the candle kids because we went, you know, to the city centers, lit, lit candles, mm. uh, Samsung held, held our hands and cried when that happened because, you know, our democracy was at a very vulnerable time. Everything we knew about the, the country we live in, you know, when your leader or your uh, head of state gets assassinated uh, from a political reason, that's, that's a very vivid memory, I think, for my generation mm -hmm. of how fragile the democracy is. And it's almost vicious, like how Netanyahu got away with this. And here he is again, like act two kind of like mandating his recklessness on our country again, hmm. 25 okay. years later. That's, that's interesting. Okay, so, so the recent election, it's like, once again, extremely close, but Netanyahu assembles this coalition that, that is like hard right. In Israel, we call it, we call, in Israel, we have like a, a saying, um, because they were saying, you know, for, for so many years, their hard right was saying, just let us rule. No compromises. Stop those, you know, coalitions that are, you know, just just making making a compromise or looking for a middle ground. Let's do it. We call it right, right, full, full, you know, like just to kind of like demonstrate that's the way they described it. We're gonna be right, right, full, full, like going all the way as much right as we can. Like and huh, okay. This this is the outcome of the polarization of of the the public opinion like people are saying you know we tried to build these um like uniting um governments so we looked for pulling together parties that didn't uh, previously work together as you mentioned like this was the first time an arab party was part of the the coalition mm -hmm. um which is a huge step forward. This is like the previous government yeah. had Arab participation. Yeah. Whereas before there was always, not, I don't know if always, there was often Arab legislators in the Knesset, but they sort of like would boycott any ruling coalition as like a protest against the general legitimacy of the Zionist state or something. And then yeah. it was remarkable that they joined this coalition to, to be against Netanyahu. Yeah. The, the funny part, again, not to get too down the rabbit hole of Israeli politics, which is endless, is that <laughs> Netanyahu actually at some point tried uh, to reach out to Abbas, the, the party that ended up joining Bennett's coalition. Mm -hmm. But he said, I'm not, I'm not going to sit with you. You're a racist or something like that. And But not, not Mahmoud Abbas, right? The other Abbas? No, that's Mansour Abbas. He's like the leader of um, the Islamic party. The yeah. Israeli Arabs, basically. Yes. Um, but again, religious Islamists, but kind of like pragmatists looking to be part of the Israeli uh, system and try to improve day-to-day -day life for the Arab uh, population. There's a huge Arab minority inside Israel, like in South, right. the borders of 67. Um, people that are unquestionably Israeli citizens. Um, 20%. Yeah, around 20%. Um, yeah. And I guess we, they used to be called Israeli Arabs, although I think that now that term has become not as popular to say, I don't know, Palestinians in Israel or something like that. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So Daniel, yeah who that's, was so, that's a whole new topic. <laughs> we could talk about trials. Yeah, you're right. So, every everything we mentioned, there's a rabbit hole you could go down. Um, okay. But then, so Netanyahu was able to bring. Jews and Arabs together, um, again, you know, like to work together to be against him. But this was a very narrow government, and it had like two prime ministers um, instead of one who switched off, and then it collapsed. And new elections, this strong right coalition was assembled. Okay, and then like a month or so ago, there was these big protests in Israel, and the the main thing that they were protesting against was like changes that Netanyahu wanted to make to the judicial, the judicial system in Israel or the Supreme court specifically. And that is the main thing that, um, 
that got people angry or will you you tell me was it was it finally like he he like did he went too far with this one specific thing or or why are why are you like now joining a protest movement and and giving a speech you know in front of thousands of people okay okay that's that's a hard one i'll try to crack it a bit um so just in general we've been talking about i mean we talked about the like how norms erode so norms have eroded have been eroding for a while like Netanyahu is still, you know, in office for the sixth time, but probably for the third time since he's been um, indicted. Indict? I don't know how to pronounce that properly. Indicted. Indicted. Yeah. So he's been indicted on uh, bribery, breach of trust, um, and probably something else, which I'm forgetting the word for. Um, and these protests have been on for a few years now just against, you know, the unethical position this guy is taking. Like, you cannot be sitting as the head of the country, the acting head of the country, when there's an active trial going on. This person leaves the prime minister office a couple of times a week, occasionally, and goes sits in his court. Like, that's, that's insane, right? <laughs> um, and we did have our prime minister, Eud Olmert, a few years ago, was accused and found guilty for bribery, served time, sat in jail, resigned, you know, to do all that. And Netanyahu, as the head of opposition at the time, was, we actually, you know, the protesters use quotes that Netanyahu gave, like, it's, it's become like a, a well-known phrase. Netanyahu said, and now is used, you know, protesting against him as a prime minister that is involved, you know, over his head with with um, criminal accusations, could not be holding office at the time because there is a strong suspicion, not on based on anything, that means that he's gonna um, take his own favor or the position that favors with him over the country's good. Mm -hmm. like, right. Okay. I so probably just so yeah. So just to... translated, it's like really bad. But you see, okay, but just to clarify, here, like, yeah. So like. In America, a president has never gone to, to jail, you know, a former president or a sitting president. Um, it's possible that that may change with Trump because there's like five different cases against him that may like result in an indictment. But also like a president has never gone on trial. You know, a former president has never gone on trial in America either. So there's a huge norm against it. And, and there's people who don't like Trump who are still worried that indicting him would be bad because it would like be too radical or something. That's not the case in Israel well, because Ehud yeah, Olmert. We also have a president. We had a president, which is that president is more like a, uh, an honor position. But yeah, so is, Israel has the prime minister is the head of the government, and then the president is the head of state. We don't have that in America. They're both the the president serves both those roles. Right. But in a, in a parliamentary system, it's often the um, the president is like either appointed by the king or queen, or is the king or queen themselves. Uh, you know the the head of state role yeah. and like Israel doesn't have a monarchy neither does America but there's this there's a person who's sort of like a respected figure who is has that role of president and so so like in you know in the UK they go to the it used to be the queen and say the king you know the prime minister to say like I'm forming a government and the king or queen says okay that's good it's just mostly ceremonial and in Israel it's um like an elder statesman sort of role that someone does so we don't have that in america but yeah but yeah so ehul omer was just convicted on like corruption charges and went to jail and um moshe katsav was the president when he got accused of uh, multiple sexual um misconduct or mm -hmm. rape and you know sexual assault um he actually stepped down because of those accus accusations. He was found guilty and he served time in jail. And at the time, um, I think many Israelis, I mean, I personally do take pride in this system that says there is one law in Israel. Like the fact that you're a prime minister or a president does not mean that the law does not apply. Um, and why are we talking about all these aspects? Because, you know, at the moment, this is exactly the breach we're seeing with the, the actions Netanyahu is, is doing. Like, 
obviously, if you've got an active trial going on against you, you cannot be messing around with the system as that goes on, right? That's just not done, I guess. So this, this I think, is kind of like at the core mm-hmm. of, of the civil uprise that we're seeing. Like people saying, hey, that's not how the game is played. Um, there, there's a bunch of things going on around this, like the, the um, oh, attorney general, I think that would be the right term. Uh, she's like warrant Netanyahu from actively participating in any of the, um, you know, discussions going on around this. Like he's got a personal conflict of interest, you know, mm-hmm. literally on this thing. Like you cannot be talking about the way you're going to be promoting judges when you have a judge, you know, sitting on your case, mister. That's not how this democracy game is played, mm-hmm. I guess. To put it in plain English. <laughs> and, you know, like Israel is a young democracy compared to the United States. Like, you know, it was founded in 1948. But the fact that they can send a former prime minister and president to prison, you know, whereas in America that <laughs> like, I, you know, Israel gets better grades in terms of yeah, treating everyone in, in this particular instance, everyone, you know, is treated equally before the law. I think Israel does better than the United States um, on, on this one. Okay, so so Netanyahu wants to do this like quote unquote judicial reform or something that is complicated. And like, I guess it's like complicated on purpose to try to like confuse people about what's happening, but it seems basically like a power grab and it would make it so that the Israeli Supreme Court, which is very independent and I guess more independent than the US Supreme Court is in various ways, um, would like its decisions could be overruled by the Knesset, the parliament. Is that right? Yeah. So again, just to kind of like give you a crash course in Israeli um, <laughs> democracy, we've got three arms to the, you know, to the system. We've got the government, which is like the operating. I mean, that's the way we call it in Hebrew. I'm probably not translating it accurately, but the operating arm is you know, the government, prime minister, ministers, Mm -hmm. uh, offices, administration. We've got the legislative system, which is the Knesset. We only have one house of of legislators, Um, only 120 people. If you've got 61 on your side, you build a coalition, you swear in the government, you know, everything goes through the Knesset. But again, without getting into too many details over the years, um, the government has completely took over the, the Knesset. Um, so the, it, it almost became like um, the checks and balances we had there between the Knesset um, overseeing or, or supervising the work of the government that has eroded over the years from understood systems, right? No one, no government wants the Congresses or, you know, uh, houses slowing them down, asking the hard questions, looking into their actions. So we have that side being weakened over the years. Mm-hmm. And the third arm um, is, the, is the court. And the Supreme Court is almost like the last balance or the last, you know, break. When the government wants to do things, um, it's going to be the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, in this reform, the spin the right is putting on this is the Supreme Court court is a lefty or it's a closed you know it's a closed club of lefties that's completely inaccurate there's like a bunch of rulings over the years that show how the supreme court for one stood up for um the people that have been evacuated the jewish uh israelis that have been evacuated from either with the uh the the program Ariel sharon did uh, 2005 um, you know, yes. removing so the, the we would call them settlers. I mean, the U.S. we would call them settlers um, in Gaza. So removing the yeah, removing those settlements. Supreme Court intervened and said, "Hey, you know, the fact that the Knesset went through this process and passed the the laws allowing this does not mean these people are not eligible for proper compensation for losing their houses and hmm. you know being resettled in Israel." So. You could see that as a very right wing to speak, you know, decision. So the Supreme Court is 
independent and makes decisions as it sees it based on the law. It's not just like the last holdout of the liberals, you know, in the Israeli state. Um, okay, so Daniel wants to disempower the court. And in part, this seems like he wants to do this to protect his own, you know, so he doesn't end up in jail, right? But like, there's other reasons he wants to do this as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Again, I'm not a political expert here, but just from talking, hearing and reading a bunch, it seems like he's being pulled to the extreme right, um, given his partners to the coalition. There are people, you know, publicly stating they want to annexate um, the West Bank. And in order to do that, they that is something that will not pass legally um, because you're going to, I mean, you could claim today probably that there is a two-class system in, in the West Bank, in the occupied territories. Um, so making that part of the country like a full part of Israel that will not stand international laws, like that's completely against any international court it's going to mm -hmm. go to. Yeah, um, so... And the claims yeah, so, are this is just a plan to make um, the occupied territories um, become full, a full part of Israel without giving rights to the Arab Palestinian population in those territories. Um, right. And, and here we're an hour in and we're just saying apartheid for the first time. <laughs> Yay. Right. And I mean, yeah, you know, I, I think when we were talking about this before, I said like, the only politics crazier than American politics or Israeli politics. It's like so complicated. And most of the, um, you know, I think from the outside and as American Jews who care about Israel, like the main question is the Palestinian question in the West Bank and how Israel is treating um, Arabs and Palestinians. But like for an Israeli, that's just one of many issues they're dealing with. And maybe it's probably not the main one because like their main thing they're, worrying about is like sort of the everyday things that every person worries about in their lives. And so, you know, the, the debate on the outside about Israel is more, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's different from the everyday concerns of Israelis and especially with the building of the wall or barrier, whatever you want to call it, like the, the separation from the Palestinians. Yeah. The Palestinians mm -hmm. in the West Bank were further separated from contact with Israelis. And in some ways it was sort of like, well, we don't have to worry about what's happening over there. Um, yeah. So, so fully annexing the West Bank would be a radical move and it's unclear what would happen after that. Um, like would Israel like become an international pariah state in the way that like North Korea or Iran are now, or, or, or would it spark like a regional war? It's, it's unclear. So that'd be like an incredibly provocative and risky move. But at the same time, like from the American perspective, um, you know, people who are critical of Israel, like this has just been happening in slow motion for decades now of like further and further encroachment into the West Bank and um, and more like land being given to Jewish settlers and so forth. And like life getting worse and worse for Palestinians. Um, and so I, I think the way we're we look at it, I mean, and when I say we, I probably mean, you know. 90% of um, Israelis, Jews that live within the 67, you know, borders. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's, it's out of our reach, out of our um, understanding. I wouldn't say understanding. That's, that's not the right way to put it. But it's, it's out of our awareness on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we treat it, I mean, people call it an you know, the popular way to treat it would be calling it um, is probably we call it the state of Israel and the state of uh, Judah. Like, you know, what happens in the in the West Bank is like that's a different country or that's I mean, not in a positive way, but it's definitely out of our day to day concern and reach because mm -hmm. like within, you know, the board, the 67 borders, life is reasonable, like you're not hopefully not violently attacking anyone on a daily basis. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's probably, it's, it's, you know, but it, we cannot ignore it. It's almost like this thing we've been ignoring for 50 something year 
mm-hmm. you know it's yeah i mean like you know, life's backfiring in, for sure well tell me if this is right or not life in the pre-67 israeli borders is more or less like life in a european city or maybe an america like mixed with an american city in some ways and you can live a life in israel without thinking a ton about the palestinians um is that true i think it is i mean we're probably less polite um and it's more crowded <laughs> yes, it's than a different loud. culture yes but yeah i think that's a, and again that's that's an outcome of a designed policy of separating the life the day-to-day life of israelis and palestinians to an extent that, you know, we started talking about uh, Rabin and the Oslo peace process. That no one even says peace anymore. It's just about managing the conflict, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just let's keep this, you know, low key as much as we can. But this, the problem, I, I don't like to call it the problem because we're talking about people, but they're not going anywhere. Like there's 3 million Palestinians between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. What's our plan for those guys, right? What, what are we expecting is going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. What's, what's the vision? So again, we, we started off on a completely different topic and we got to that because that's definitely, that's playing a role in everything, even if not directly, but definitely by the people that are, have an agenda about this. Right. Yeah. And so the, like Netanyahu's coalition includes, you know, ultra right wing, Zionists and people who want more and more settlements and the the you could argue you could argue they're post-Zionists you know because being a Zionist let's let's go down that rabbit hole for a minute (laughs) being a Zionist and you know we're coming from a Zionist family right Uh, people say about themselves they're Zionists but Zionists means you believe in Israel as, as, as being the home for the Jewish people you know, very broadly speaking. But what happens if Israel becomes a state that covers the geography, you know, of the the biblical land of Canaan, you know, and Mm -hmm. everyone that lives within that territory, but the majority, because this is the demographics really, shows that it's not, that the Jewish people aren't the majority here anymore. There's just, you know, as many, Palestinians in this territory. It's still called Israel. There's a Jewish minority imposing their, you know, regime over the majority. Is this still a Zionist state? Because the Zionist state that we talk about and praise, going back to the Declaration of Independence, gives equal rights to everyone that lives here as the home for the Jewish people. But if you're not Jewish, you still get equal rights. But that this, uh, you know, one state for for two nations that's happening, if we don't course correct here, is that still a Zionist state? So when you say, I, I just jumped at you when you said, like, these settlers, ultra-right people, I don't consider them as Zionists, okay. and I don't think they would define themselves as Zionists. Well, that's interesting. So, so maybe a better term would be like Jewish supremacist or something. Yes, yes, like, that's like, the way like they're people treated. who think that yes, we're the Jews and we deserve to rule. Um, yes, because... and they talk about expelling the non-Jews from this territory as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's out there. It's not an interpretation. You know, okay, they're talking about this. Okay, so let me step back. So most American Jews are liberals and they vote for Democrats. And like th- this has been pretty consistent, even, you know, Trump. It's like 75% of American Jews are liberals and vote for Democrats. And almost all American Jews like are at least like soft Zionists. <laughs> you know, there's there's some American Jews who think Israel shouldn't exist. But the mainstream, you know, if you had to pick like what the average American Jewish opinion would be, liberal in America and quote-unquote liberal Zionists. Like the past 20 or so years of of Americans watching what's been happening in Israel um, has been very depressing. And it seems like Israel is moving farther and farther to the right. And the dream of, you know, the two states, it seems seems essentially dead now. And so people like me, um, I think, 
have sort of like stopped thinking about this as much because it's just depressing um, because we grew up thinking Israel was this great place and was this sort of like sister state to America and was also somewhere where if things are really bad in America would take us in. At least this is what I was taught sort of implicitly, implicitly and explicitly in Hebrew school when I was a child. Um, and then along with uh, Shalom, right? <laughs> yes. They, they taught us how to read Hebrew so we could be bar mitzvahed. Um, and, but we, they never taught us how to speak it, or at least I never learned how to speak it. Um, yeah. So the, you know, the past decade, decade plus, it's just been like, well, this is depressing. I don't want to think about this too much because it's, it's too upsetting to think about it. And everything is, there, everything is a mess there and it's just getting worse. And so I'm just going to like disengage from, you know, I'm not going to go around saying, yes, I'm a liberal Zionist because it seems like a harder and harder position to maintain because of the facts on the ground and the way Israeli governments are treating the Palestinians. And so I think there has been like, we've had plenty of our own problems in America here too, um, before Trump and during Trump. And it just sort of seems like, and especially people my age and younger, we, we don't have the connection to Israel that our parents did. Certainly. I mean, <laughs> your mom, uh, born in New Jersey and moved to America or moved to Israel rather. And I think there's fewer, you know, if you're an American who's moving to Israel today, like it's sort of like, what, you know, like <laughs> why do you want to go there? Um, like, do you want to be a West Bank settler or something? So, yeah. So it's just like, it's messy. It's like extremely personal for a lot of people. Like, I think this is true. I don't know if you've heard this story. Maybe this is a family legend that our grandparents met at a Zionist dance in New Jersey during yeah. World War II. Um, so if, you know, our, our just the idea of Zionism is like within our, you know, bloodline in this weird way. Um, so, so let me offer, let me offer, uh, I would say, let's call it a refreshed connection. Reconnecting with cousins. Um, <laughs> yes. With Aura and Arya. Um, so I'm in the tech industry for a few years already, uh, over a decade. And once in a while, I attend a big tech conference here and there. We have a very vivid local tech scene, uh, which is outward looking, you know, many international funds, you know, activities, a lot of things go on here in Israel. And I go to a conference, I go to a place called the House of the Zionists of America, it's just a conference hall. And I go there and I see the plaque with Henry Rosenbaum, our grandfather, you know, engraved there. Our, our, our great-grandfather. So our, our great-grandfather, great, sorry. Our great-grandfather yeah. was prominent American Zionist um, and donated money and was an activist in America. Yes, sorry, I'm getting my facts wrong. So, <laughs> but, but again, kind of like rejuvenating the, the relevance of this is many Israelis, uh, I mean, not as many as we would like, but many of Israelis are employed in the tech sector and have daily connections with the international community, uh, probably for business, but there is, you know, a, a big population. Uh, some of my best friends are living in the U.S. these days as Israelis or ex-Israelis. I would not define them. Uh, you yeah, know, Israeli. Ex we would call them expats, I yeah. guess, if they're living in yeah. America. Yeah, and this connection or this. Um, this concern about the turn of events, you should care about it not because of your origins or, you know, I mean, you should care for any reason you want to care, but you could probably keep an eye on what's going on because this has deep economical implications. Like this is probably going to move a lot of the money that's coming in the country and the value Israel is generating for the definitely for the local, but also for the global economy, this, this is not a good turn of events. Like there's, there's no innovation in, in a dictatorship, right? Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, as much as, you know, we love what North Korea brought to the world, <laughs> you know, we take pride of Waze and, you know, a bunch of other Waze, Waze, the, the app Waze is, yeah. is really, yeah, yes, there's uh, a lot of yeah. tech companies that, are in international markets that were founded in Israel. Yeah. So again, we're kind of like trying to 
we don't have a crystal ball here, but it seems like this will not have good implications on, you know, our day-to-day lives. What, what I do for a living, what a bunch of my friends do for a living. And interestingly enough, 25% of the tax in Israel, tax money comes from the tech sector. It only employs 10% of the workforce, but it generates, you know, 25%. Mm-hmm. of the income tax. So this is a big deal. And tech people are worried and are being very vocal about this because you, you're not going to do business. Uh, I mean, good modern tech-based business in a dictatorship. Like this is not how the world operates. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I, if, did you, did you like the pitch? Are you going to invest now in Israel? <laughs> I don't know, but. Okay. So what you're saying is, you know, the Israeli tech sector is like punches above its weight for a country of like 8 million citizens. Like it's uh, a bit shy of 10 million, okay. I guess. You know, there's, it's a much more, you know, prominent um, force than a equivalent you know country somewhere else in the world that has this many people living there. Um, and the, the link between American Silicon Valley and Israeli tech entrepreneurs is pretty deep. And if Netanyahu is able to pass this weakening of the Supreme court and becoming less of a democracy, then American investors are not going to say, oh, here's an Israeli startup. I want to give $50 million to because like the court system there is, is sort of like a fake. Is it, would that be accurate? Correct. I think that's that's the voices we're hearing currently. And and a bunch of activists and investors have been raising the concerns. Um, you know, it's it's just not, you know, one person saying this. This is, you know, people that make decisions and see the money move around. They're saying this is bad. Um, right. So, I mean, maybe a, a parallel would be sort of like, you know, not exact in any way, but like, after Russia invaded Ukraine, like all all international investment in Russia, like halted, and it, it, so this would not be you know just passing this specific law would not be as dramatic. But like if they did annex the West Bank, maybe that would be as dramatic as the, the invasion of Ukraine in terms of like Israel becoming a true pariah state, um, and so that would be bad forever for the for Israelis and. American Jews and the world, because we want, we don't want pariah states. We want people to get along with each other and collaborate and not have war. So, um, okay. So you, so there was this rally in Tel Aviv and you, you spoke at the rally and we'll include a link to an English translation of the speech that you gave at this rally, talking about how, which some of what you talked about before of how the fact that there's an independent Supreme court in Israel Change the rules about like gender segregation in the military, and you know because there's universal enlistment, the military is plays a huge role in Israeli society. Um, and so, like your life was changed directly because of Supreme Court rulings. And you know, you're, if if that hadn't happened, like you would be leading a different life today. Um, like, okay, hundred. you know, if there was a protest in Manhattan that attracted 100,000 people, that would be a big deal. But Israel is a much smaller place. And so 100,000 people showing up for a protest would be like a million people or 5 million people showing up for a protest in America or something like that. So it was a big deal. Um, but at the same time, like, Netanyahu did win. And, like, like, Israeli society seems to have gotten much, much more conservative. So how are you thinking about about this, like... You know, like the Labor Party is basically dead, which was once, which was like the founding party of Israel and was a socialist party. And it's like all the energy, you know, people who 30 years ago would have been considered like pretty conservative are now like the moderates or like, you know, sort of like left moderates today because yeah, society, so society has gone so conservative. So, how, I mean, are you optimistic? How are you feeling about this, this whole thing? Those are two. Those are two different questions. The first question, I'll, I'll, I'll start from the end. I'm always optimistic because that's my superpower. That's like, that's what I decide to be because I'm not optimistic. There's no reason to live here, really. The, you know, the forecasts and the outlooks are just too, too grim. Like there is no reason 
to stay, stick around if you're not optimistic and hopeful. So I'm starting from that point. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go back to the harder question, which is about, you know, just the landscape here and what does it mean to be liberal or something like that. So let's, let's talk about gender equity, because I feel like that's kind of like my angle on this. Um, looking at gender equity and assuming people, the majority of, of the country is advancing or the views, even people that voted for Netanyahu, I'm assuming, aren't all religious to a point that they think women should not leave the house. Um, there are a few people in the country that think that, but do we really want to give them the power to decide for the entire country? So there, we're seeing shifts of power like to the hands of people that are at the most extreme. Like, I don't want to sound like an alarmist about this, but it's almost like giving the Taliban, like, <laughs> you know, the power to decide, or like the Jewish Taliban, the power to decide, like, what my kids would do, what my girls would, would be when they grow up. So obviously, you know, some religious parties in Israel don't have women under, you know, under in any position, you know, by cho like by their choice. I don't know what the women choose choose there, but that for me, that's not an acceptable reality in Israel. And they're talking again about gender segregation becoming legal and anti uh, LGBTQ um, legislation, like mm -hmm. saying, you know, you 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 see those stuff happening in the U.S. and in Israel, saying, okay, if this person is gay and I don't want to, you know, print and an invite to their party, I don't have to do that. You know, I have the right to deny service to people that I just don't like for mm -hmm. religious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and in Israel, this is turning the wheel backwards because we have been in a point where it seemed like the minority rights, you know, on those issues has passed, you know, the point of no return in a positive way that the fact that they are conservative regressionary forces in the Israeli society does not mean that they need to be, you know, in the driver's seat to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but in the current turn of events, and we always have the Supreme Court, right, to rule for um, gay partner rights as they did, like back in the 90s, saying, you know, if, if you're... Um, Employed by the national uh, air carrier, Elal. That's a real story. And uh, your partner is same sex and, you know, not um, a wife or, or a husband. They still get the rights they would have. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's a Supreme Court ruling from the early 90s that was, was a very, you know, kind of like broke the... the broke open the, the way for legislating, you know, um, LGBTQ rights mm -hmm. in Israel. Mm -hmm. And again, a bunch of examples on how when the power shifts, again, we're going back to the transition of power. So the power is shifting, politics changes, but are there still things that are fundamental enough in our non-existent constitution that we're not willing to turn the wheel back on? So that's, that's what gets me, you know, to protest and to, to speak up is the fact that we're not going back. I mean, I do not want to raise my kids in a country, my girls, my daughters in a country that offers them less opportunities based on gender. That's just not acceptable. And I think the reality we're heading, if we don't act, is exactly that. Because those voices are not in my head. Mm -hmm. I've got other voices in my head, but this, <laughs> these voices are not in my head. Those are completely out there. Uh -huh. And I'm referring to that in my speech as well. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're not going to go back. Mm -hmm. Not being present in the public sphere. Uh -huh. Okay, we've been talking for a while. I feel like we should probably wrap yeah. up. And we've gone down various rabbit holes. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm probably going to end it out at least some of the rabbit holes because... Oh, please do. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> There's just too much there, I think. Yeah. I mean, every, you know, 
anyone talking about Israel could talk about it for a very, very long time. For a, for a lifetime, right? Yes. Um, but in in summing up, is well, is there anything you want to say um, before we close things out? Yeah, I think as as history is kind of like changing or like happening, you know, as we speak, and since we talked yesterday to until today, things are moving fast. This is a it feels like a very crucial time window. Like we're 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 driving towards a cliff. Um and we're kind of like looking for ways people could help us, you know, hit the brakes on this one. Mm-hmm. So if you care about Israel, if you have connections in Israel, you do business with Israelis, you care about your cousins, I don't know. Um any of the above, all all that apply. Just inform yourself about what's going on. Um, I think most Israelis are not comfortable with what's happening with, you know, this direction of Israel becoming just a formal or a democracy by name only. Uh, we're, this is not how we see our country. We're not okay with this. So don't see Israel through the lens of the government, but, you know, reach out, hear the voices of the people. Um, get interested. Uh, hopefully we could raise attention and people that care about Israel could help us, you know, hit the brakes just before we drive over this cliff of autocracy, I guess. Yeah. And sort of the, I mean, what we haven't said explicitly is like America has acted as Israel's big brother patron, um, you know, sort of like, like vetoing resolutions of the United Nations and so forth. And so um, I, it seems like if Biden or something or Tony Blinken, the secretary of state said to Netanyahu, like, no, you can't do this, then that, like that has a lot of power in Israel. And yeah, so so American Jews, if they, you know, care about this and make noise about this, like it will, it, it can have an effect because it, you know, America is still not Israel's protector exactly, but like, how do you see America as an Israeli? Well, I know, I know, I know very little about American politics, but it's almost like we cannot do without. Like, big things don't happen without the U.S. approval. Um, so you know, APAC is becoming vocal about this, and APAC is like, you know, the best supporter of Israel. So, if your big brother or sister is telling you, you know, hey this is an intervention, something bad's happening. You're, you know, using substance or something, you're, you're getting high on, on power, um, which essentially I feel is what's happening. We should probably, you know, take note. And there's, again, without making this a BDS issue where like external parties or countries or governments intervene with what's happening inside Israel, there is, in fact, a lot of the involvement happening already from the right wing. Um, like a lot of this is being driven by external forces. Again, not to go down another rabbit hole, but just in general, I think the U.S. when you know when Biden Biden speaks, I guess Netanyahu listens, um, and it seems like again voices are starting to rise in the U.S. about this. So it's, it's okay. a good. I, it's I a didn't good realize signal. that APAC is weighed in on this because it's what it seems like to me is that APAC basically more or less toes, whatever party line the is happening in Israel. So like if it's Netanyahu, they'll more or less do what Netanyahu wants. If it's Ehud Olmert, they'll do more or less whatever Olmert wants. And, and in the past, you know, 10 years, since it's mostly been right wing governments, APAC has, you know, pissed off a lot of, liberal American Jews as seen, being seen as like just doing whatever Netanyahu wanted. So if, if this is like, a, you know, a bridge too far for, for APAC, then that's a sign that. Um, yeah, this is really getting, this is really getting out of hand. Yeah. yeah not many people outside of Israel are going to be happy about this. Like once, if you, if the Israeli government can piss off APAC, then, then like, <laughs> you know, things have really come to a sorry state. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, but you know, this is like this protest movement is a month old, and like you don't have, and you're involved in it. But like this is, 
early days and there's no like website we can send people to. So I'd say, I'd say uh, follow um, independent Israeli media. Again, not to get into how Netanyahu is also trying to uh, rig the media. That's in the playbook of killing the democracy, as we know. Um, but look, look at the independent uh, reporters. Uh, hopefully, we're going to be producing some content uh, in English. There's a bunch of um, democracy. We'll, we'll drop some links, I guess, in the episode for some Twitter handles. Okay. Um, I mean, from does, your, about this. does your does this protest movement have a name? Like, what are you calling yourselves? It's just the the protest movement currently. Honestly, it's been like dozens of small organizations just coming together recently and saying, okay, this is too big for us not to be operating together. Mm -hmm. And it has so many different fronts and so many different groups. Like I started with the people from my naval unit. They started forming, like the alumni. We started, you know, huddling together. And there's the women's movements and there's, you know, just name it, a bunch of others and just citizens from Haifa and, you know, from all around. So this is this is catching and growing. Okay. Well, so it's it like doesn't a... really matter which one of them you're gonna be following, just in general, the oh, general okay. democratic um protest. Okay, that's interesting. I mean it, it reminds me somewhat of like the women's march in the US after Trump was elected, you know, this organization did not exist when Trump won, and then they managed to, you know, bring millions of people to DC like two months later. But having a good name is important when you have any sort of movement. So maybe you guys should be thinking about something. Um, I, you know, I, I have no idea what it would be, but you know, having having a good name or acronym or something is uh, helps with. Hey, I'm 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 on the Israeli Democratic Roadshow. That's the way I call my current uh, effort. So yes, I'm glad to speak to anyone that's interested. The democracy movement or something like that would um would be be a term because you do you do eventually need to like. A website to point people to or something or um yeah there's probably content i'll, I'll share links i look it up a bit and share with you so you could post okay cool um anything else you want to add before we say goodbye i i think we did plenty i i think we did just a zillion <laughs> topics i i honestly i feel sorry for you for having to edit this thing well yeah i hope hopefully you're happy with it this is the, yes, I, we went into a lot. There was a lot we didn't cover, and this is not the normal stuff I talk about on my show. But hopefully, people who are still listening got something out of this. I've learned something, and if they're interested, we'll continue to seek out information. Um, okay, well, Aura cousin, um, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Talking about this stuff. A pleasure talking to you. Yeah, and thank you to all of the listeners out there, and we'll see you again next time.